Welcome to Paradigms on WBKM. This is episode number 147, Sunday, April 21st, 2013. Good evening and welcome to another episode of Paradigms. My name is Baruch and I'm happy to be with you tonight. We have two guests on the show tonight who are both people working in service and doing really amazing stuff. The first guest is author and lecturer and former Catholic priest, now an Episcopal priest, Matthew Fox. He'll be talking about his two most recent books and some seminars he has coming up and some about his life. And our second guest is Suzanne Sterling. Suzanne is a musician and a, a yoga practitioner and works with a nonprofit called Off the Mat Into the World. And we'll be hearing some about the trip to India that she just took with Off the Mat. So that's what the show looks like tonight. Lots of great music. Some of the music will be from uh, music that was composed by Hildegard of Bingen, who was a 12th century nun. And one of Matthew Fox's most recent books is about Hildegard of Bingen, who was also recently made a saint in the Catholic Church. So I think you'll find her music interesting and uh, quite lovely, and also some new music from Suzanne Sterling. As always, there are links to the websites of our guests on the Paradigms website, paradigms.bz. I hope you'll check out the website where all our shows are archived. So with no delay, let's meet Matthew Fox. You're listening to Paradigms on WBKM. Matthew Fox, hello and welcome to Paradigms. Thank you. Good to be with you. You're doing so many interesting things, your books, the teaching that you're doing. And Before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, are there one or two specific moments in your growing up that you feel led you to where you are now? I think just growing up in Wisconsin, where I'm from, Madison, Wisconsin, I think the beauty of the land and the seasons and the presence of the Native American um, spirit in the land was a big part of my growing up and also being part of a large family of seven children, dynamic parents. I think all that had a lot to do with nourishing me. And when I was 12 years old, I got polio and um, I lost my legs. They couldn't tell me if I'd ever walk again. So when I got my legs back about a year later or so, I was very grateful to the universe. And I remember saying, I won't take my legs for granted again. I think that in retrospect, that was kind of a mystical encounter, learning not to take things for granted. When I was in the hospital with polio, there was a Dominican brother who was very contemplative and who actually ended up being a Trappist monk who would come and visit me. And I was quite uh, taken by his serenity. It was sort of a, an alternative model of being a male, I guess, that I found alluring. I think in retrospect, that was all part of my awakening also. It sounds like you were surrounded by different kinds of spirituality and then having your own transformative experience by recovering from polio. Yes, I was. We were a practicing Catholic family, and that meant a lot to me then. Madison is a university town and a capital city, so it's somewhat cosmopolitan, even though it wasn't very large. I went to public high school, and of course my friends were Protestant and Jewish and agnostic. 
and my parents' friends were also. So there was a rather broad exposure also. My parents very wisely would uh, rent out one of the rooms in the house to a graduate student from the University of Wisconsin who was a, a foreigner. So I grew up with a Singh from India, with a communist from Yugoslavia, with an uh, ex-bullfighter from Venezuela, all kinds of characters <laughs> who were sharing a room uh, next to me, uh, one after the other uh, during my high school years. And I think that was a marvelous exposure to the world. It gave me a sense of how everyone is not Catholic, everyone is not white, and everyone is not Western. I think that was a, a subtle, a very important instructional dimension to my growing up as well. Sounds like your parents were both very smart and thoughtful about their parenting. <laughs> well, I think they were, and they were, they were somewhat original, too. They didn't just go by the book. <laughs> well, exposing your kids to difference, some people go out of their way to keep their kids from difference. Mm, that's true. I'd love to jump into talking about Hildegard, because it's the first of your books I've ever read, and I fell in love with her. Oh. I'm just imagining, for you, it must have been like a great light shining when you discovered her. <laughs> well, that's true, and I first discovered her, wow, over 30 years ago, because I was living in Chicago at the time. Before that, I discovered Meister Eckhart. When I say discovered, I mean discovered for myself. He, too, I found to be a, a brother in terms of thought and ideas. In many ways, Eckhart led me to Hildegard. And then when I discovered her, I was also excited. I remember the first time I started translating her, I shared her with a class. And I was teaching at Mundelein College in Chicago. And um, a student spoke up after I read just one of her poems and said, my goodness, that lady you just quoted sounded like the medicine man on the Indian reservation where I lived for 18 years. And that really struck home to me that here's a 12th century nun who uh, sounds like a, <laughs> a 20th century Lakota spiritual teacher. So that taught me how the pre-modern consciousness of the medieval mind and the indigenous people have so much in common. And of course, what they have in common is a sense of cosmology and the sacredness of the earth and sacredness of our place in it. So... All that, I think, is very pertinent for the ecological struggle that we're all engaged in today, but also for kind of cleansing our minds of the anthropocentrism that has dominated Western education and religion and politics and economics for centuries, for far too long. And Hildegard really breaks out of that because she's, she thinks in terms of the earth. Mother Earth, she says, must not be injured, must not be destroyed. And she thinks in terms of the cosmos, and she paints pictures of it, and she creates songs, and she says every being in the universe is making music, creating melody. So she has this consciousness that is it's very contemporary, very postmodern. But it's postmodern because it's pre-modern, because it's not um, anthropocentric. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And so it's very uh, I-centered. It's not we-centered. Uh, extremely human-centered, it's anthropocentric. And so humans have, for centuries, imagined that it's our right and our, even our duty to go around and um, conquer the earth and uh, subdue it. Now we're paying the price for that, of course. And people are still espousing that. The chairman of Nestle just came out and said that water is not a human right and nature is bad and we're here to conquer it. 
good heavens. This is 2013, and people are saying those things. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I remember I talked to a fellow up in uh, Northern California there with the ancient redwoods are, and he said that uh, he was present when the president of this logging corporation from Texas, who owned the land, stood in front of a 2,500-year-old tree, and he said, when I see a tree like this, I don't see a tree. He said, what I see is a stump with cash stashed from the stump to the sky. That's what this man said. He was president of a corporation that hires hundreds of people. No doubt he contributes lots of money to political campaigns, too. But, I mean, a statement like that is pathological and very scary. How do you personally deal with the difficult emotions that come up when confronted with that kind of, I don't even want to get into the list of adjectives, How do you take care of yourself in relation to all this? (laughs) One has to find healthy outlets for one's moral outrage. And, of course, uh, a part of that is um, political organizing. But there's also, say, something personal here, too. You have to kind of get control of yourself. You don't want to respond to the reptilian brain with more reptilian brain. You have to calm that reptilian brain through meditation of some kind, some kind of calming technique that you learn and maybe just as simple as walking or being in nature or running or what have you, but we all need these calming exercises in order that our fuller brains, our better self, including our mammal and compassionate brain, can assert itself. And, of course, so that your mind can create alternatives and so you can be working with all three brains at once and not just the one. I'm not someone who believes that sitting on anger is a healthy thing, quite the opposite. Thomas Aquinas, one of my important brothers and teachers, says that uh, nothing great happens without anger. So anger is an energy that we can and must use, but we don't want it to run away with us. We want to corral it and bridle it, as Meister Eckes says, bridle your passions. Then they can help carry you where you need to go, but you have to employ your mammal brain and your intellectual brain to... um, wrap it around some of these uh, struggles we're engaged in today. Matthew Fox, that's the first part of our conversation. Here is a piece of music now composed by Hildegard of Bingen. It's called The Fire of Creation.
that is a composition called The Fire of Creation from an album called The Origin of Fire. And this is music that was composed in the 12th century by Hildegard of Bingen. Hildegard is the subject of a book by our guest, Matthew Fox. And here is the second part of our conversation. When you think about it, so many uh, creative people, and, and I'm thinking of comedians as well as painters or others, or athletes too, have found ways to deal with their anger, which are not destructive, but which are constructive in some way. And I think that's a real important lesson in life. And I, I wish we would teach it in our schools and so forth more than we do, you know, because obviously there is a lot of anger, especially to young people. And of course, anger is also related to grief. We're all going through a lot of grief today. We do sense consciously or unconsciously that the earth is in demise. And we humans are in many ways responsible for this. And so we're grieving. And so that's another issue around anger, that we have to create outlets for grieving. We need practices. We need rituals for grieving. I've led a number of them myself, and I know how powerful it can be for people to let their grief out. Because then creativity can really flow. And if we don't let the grief out, then creativity itself gets blocked up. You have taken your wisdom and your integrity and spoken truth to power and gotten in trouble for it. And I've done that too, far less eloquently and smaller powers and lesser troubles. (laughs) But I can relate to that need to be honest, even knowing that it may mean you'll meet with great resistance. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your decision-making process, because I'm sure you had to think about, am I going to do this? One thing I teach when it comes to spirituality is that It's about mysticism on the one hand and prophecy, and mysticism is our yes to life. It's our love of life, and prophecy is our no to that which interferes with life and truth. And we're both. We have to do both. If you love something, then you're going to defend it, and you're going to defend what you cherish, and that's what uh, the prophetic energy is. So we are called upon, all of us at times in our lives, to stand up and be counted. It's a pity when people slink away from that or find excuses to run or something. But I think that when you look at the people we admire, whether it's a Gandhi or a King or a Nelson Mandela or Dorothy Day or, or Jesus, these are people who did not run from their responsibility to speak the truth. And as you say, sometimes that means truth to power and sometimes that means you lose your job or reputation or something else. I remember King was once asked, how can you march in Skokie knowing people want to shoot you? And his answer was, you have to love something more than the fear of death if you're going to live. But the fear of losing your job or the fear of death or the fear of uh, bad reputation, fear, you know, can overtake us. I have a spiritual teacher in my life, a Lakota man, who once said to me, in our tradition, he said, fear is a door in the heart that lets evil spirits in. So I said, all prayer is about strengthening your heart so that fear does not enter the door. I think that's a very powerful teaching, that we do need practices to combat the temptation to fear. I mean, we, we all have fear, but the question is, do we let it into the door of our heart or keep it outside the door? That's an important issue, because if, if fear takes over, love plays much lesser a role. Fear and love do not coexist. It's usually one or the other. 
love dries out fears, one of the lines from, from the Epistle of John, I think. Your other most recent book, about the recently resigned Pope, uh-huh. The Pope's War, your examination of what's happened in the Catholic Church, you're really challenging a lot of stuff there that, uh, what am I trying to say? Well, you really went to town on them. <laughs> <laughs> and now there's a new Pope. And I wonder what your thoughts are about the new Pope. This man seems very different than his predecessor. What are your thoughts about what's happening at the Vatican? You know, the subtitle of the book, Why Ratzinger's Secret Crusade Has Imperiled the Church and How It Can Be Saved. How can it be saved and why should it be saved? I actually talk in that book about saving treasures from the burning building because I think there are elements there that are very worthwhile to save including the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus and many of the mystics and prophets through the centuries. But as an organization, as an institution, I don't think it's destined to be saved in its present form. In fact, one of my theses in the book is that the Holy Spirit has given us, uh, what, 30-some years of two schismatic popes, Ratzinger and John Paul II, because they turned the back on the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, and the result has been a scandalous situation in the church, not only the pedophile priest and his cover-up, but the um, Inquisition is back. I list 105 theologians, I'm just one of them, who have been hounded and exiled and beaten up on for the last 30-some years. And so, you know, a church without theologians is like General Motors without engineers. You know, it's about thinking. There's been a big dumbing down of the church. The appointing of bishops and cardinals who are only yes-men and nothing more, and the backing of these right-wing neo-fascist groups like Opus Dei and Legion of Christ and Communion and Liberation and so forth. So, I mean, there's just been mountains of scandals that's been going on, plus the financial scandals. And so um, I think that, that, as I say, I think the Holy Spirit is trying to deconstruct the Church and, and really um, level it and uh, start over. And I think it's appropriate to start over because I think what we know now about the historical Jesus and his teachings and all is very powerful, and we don't need all that superstructure. They say we don't have to travel with basilicas on our back, just backpacks should do it. I'll tell you, the subtitle of that book was not mine, it was the publisher's. I wanted to call it the subtitle, And What Can Be Saved? He insisted that we call it, And How Can the Church Be Saved? But I, I prefer to just think about what can be saved. Now you've asked about the new pope. Actually, I just finished this morning a public letter to the new pope, which I think will be out as an electronic book in just a few weeks. I do have some hope that he can, first of all, that he's from the Americas and South America in particular, so hopefully he has some sensitivity to the non-European way of seeing religion. His track record is not good on subjects like liberation theology or women or homosexuals. But it is good on ecumenism, and uh, it's good pastorally. We like people, certainly appreciate the way he's been. I like the fact that he's been extremely reluctant to move into the palace of the Vatican. That's a good sign. I think that he does want to clean up the curia and the administration and the, some of the scandals. Uh, he appointed this group last week of, I think, eight cardinals from many different countries. And that'll bring some fresh blood anyway uh, into the administration which is far too um, incestuous. Will he 
have an opening to women and so forth. His taking the name Francis is a tremendous risk. First of all, no pope has ever taken that name for obvious reasons, because he's an iconic saint. And the fact that he took the name means, I think, he set the bar very, very high, because in general, people know about Francis. They know that he stands for creation. So the ecological value is right out front there by taking that name. And so we expect him to be a leader, a green pope. Secondly, of course, Francis is very much on the side of the poor. He, you know, his father was a very wealthy businessman, and he rejected it all. So will this man take the side of the poor, not just pastorally, but structurally and politically? Would he really be supporting movements to reinvent economics so that it works for everyone in the world and every creature, not just for humans? And then the question of gender uh, balance. Uh, Francis was genius at balancing the masculine and the feminine. If you read his great poem, and Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, that's what he's doing. He goes back and forth between the masculine and the feminine. He had a deep sense of the sacred feminine. And Claire, who was his friend, uh, 12 years younger than he, was a very strong woman. And he was at home with strong women. Will this pope be? Or will he continue the, the boys' club uh, and the patriarchy that obviously is, is sinking the whole ship? So I think these are values that he's taken upon himself by claiming the name Francis, and he's being watched. He will be judged on this for sure, and he should be. We should hold his feet to the fire. Matthew Fox talking about the Catholic Church, and we'll be hearing some more from him in a few minutes, uh, some of his thoughts about the new pope and his upcoming Christ Path seminars. Here's a piece of music called Whence ever it be antiphone, this is composed by Hildegard of Bingen.
Whence ever it be antiphone, that was composed by Hildegard of Bingen in the 12th century. And here is the third and final part of my conversation with theologian Matthew Fox. Really, in the Inquisition, I mean, he is a Jesuit. The Jesuits have a proud tradition of intellectual depth. Uh, Teilhard de Chardin, for example, a scientist. Will he, this man worked with science. Karl Rahner, uh, many great Jesuit theologians over the years. And so the insulting dumbing down of the church that's occurred the last 35 years under two schismatic popes, will this man turn that around? Those are a few thoughts I have about this pope. But I don't think, you know, intelligent Christians of any stripe are waiting around for the Pope to save Christianity. The question is, will the Pope join these grassroots forces and movements and small communities that are doing their best to return to the values of the gospel? That's really the question. I remember when I was a child, the Anthony Quinn movie, The Shoes of the Fisherman. I've always thought about how that humble man in that story received that office, and the office itself brought out in him things he didn't know were there mm-hmm. that were noble. Yeah. Well, that's that's what one hopes and prays for, because I think a lot of offices do that, you know. I think the presidency did that to Abraham Lincoln, you know. One of the things he's fighting is, is that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And there's been this re-centralization of the Catholic Church on the last two papacies, that has obviously resulted in immense corruption. Can he undo that? I think he wants to, uh, at least at many levels. Yeah, he wants to, so uh, I wish him well. Wanting to is a start. That's right. Let's talk about creation spirituality and the Christ Path seminars. Well, a part of the, um, the history we're passing through, and I think it, obviously this is a very significant time, not just for the planet, but for humanity and for religion, Part of what we're living through is that the very word Christianity, I think, has lost a lot of its meaning. In fact, I was doing a seminar a month ago in Germany on Hildegard of Bingen, and one woman, she said, I'm embarrassed by the word Christian. And I, I think that's an issue today. In the 12th century, when Francis was operating, the word Christendom was the old word, and it was rejected by Francis and Dominic and other reformers. They just said, we're not going to use that word anymore, because Christendom at that time implied the whole feudal establishment and the Constantinian Empire and all the rest. So today, I think the word Christianity has been so hijacked by fundamentalism that a lot of people are embarrassed by it, and it doesn't really speak to the power of of Jesus and his message. So I prefer Christ's path, because that is a biblical term. Christianity is not a biblical term. In the early church, they called themselves a path. So Andrew Harvey and I are um, doing these seminars, uh, four-year weekend seminars and workshops. We call them initiations, actually, around Christ's path. We're doing one in June. The next one is in June in Pittsburgh, and uh, we look forward to that. We did our first one here in the Oakland area a couple months ago. And we're trying to lay out what an authentic Christian tradition is, or Christ path is. And it's not just about ideas, it's also about practice, both spiritual practices, uh, dealing with our inner selves, but also the practice in the world of activism, sacred activism. You know who you remind me of more than anyone is my friend Starhawk. Well, I have great respect for Starhawk. 
of course, I got some of my trouble from her, too, because of the Vatican. They were up at night worrying that I had a, a witch in my faculty. <laughs> and I know that for a fact, because every time they wrote about me and they complained about me for 12 years before they expelled me, they always mentioned, oh, and he and he has a witch, <laughs> and he has a witch that he works with. So anyway, I have lots of uh, respect for Star because she is really stuck in there all these years and doing the pathetic things, standing up to power and offering alternatives and whether it's living with the peace movement in Gaza or working with permaculture here, she's hung in there and I I respect her a lot. So you have a good friend there. (laughs) The way you include and really kind of insist that activism is part of spiritual practice should cross all borders of ideology. Mm -hmm no matter what we identify with or call ourselves, because all that means is that we're participating. That's right. I just finished this book on young adults and spirituality with Adam Bucko, who lives in New York City and works with street youth. We interviewed a lot of 21 to 33-year-olds, because that's how we define young adult, and we find that this is what's happening, that they're far less bound by the denominations, those boxes that earmark the modern consciousness, And instead, what they're involved in is exactly this, the marriage of the contemplation and the action. Of course, this is something I've been writing about forever. Now, it's really wonderful to see a whole generation seeing this is the real issue. It's not about churches and religious boxes. It's much more about what are we contributing and how are we deepening our own presence to ourselves and to spirit. How do you relate to the word hope? Well, my favorite definition of hope, it comes from David Orr, the eco-philosopher. He says, hope is a verb with the sleeves rolled up. (laughs) (laughs) And I like that a lot. To me, hope is conditional. It's about, well, what are we doing? And what place is it coming from? Is it just coming from action-reaction? Is it coming from the reptilian brain? Or is it coming from a deeper place? That's so different from the passive sitting back and hoping. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, couch potatoitis is a serious problem in today's culture. And one reason is that we're taught this. The political system wants us to be couch potatoes and passive, and a lot of religion does and so forth, right? So then you sit around eating potato chips and and hoping. No, that's that's not what I mean by hope. (laughs) Well, you just gave me the word back, so thank you. Oh, great, I'm glad. What's the opposite of hope? You know, usually you find it as despair. Aquinas says despair is the most dangerous of all sins. It's not the worst. Uh, Injustice is the worst. But he says when people are in despair, they no longer care about themselves, and therefore they don't care about others. And he says the worst thing you can do in your life is to teach despair. Those are strong words, and I think they they underscore the importance of your question. What are we doing besides just hoping? <laughs> well, Matthew, thank you so much for your time and the work you're doing, and just really appreciate you. Well, thank you, and thanks for the work you're doing. I think good journalism and media is a big vocation at this time. We need alternative voices asking these kinds of questions, and I thank you for doing it. Matthew Fox. I hope you'll check out his website, matthewfox.org, where you can learn more about his books and his upcoming seminars. One of the things that he mentioned to me 
is that they have priced the seminars extremely low, $50 for the weekend, because they really want people to come. They're not into making money off of this. It's really, it's service work to bring people to, you know, whatever it is that's going to nourish them. So I hope you'll check out Matthew's website and his books. I felt personally uh, that I learned a lot talking with him and reinforced things that I, I already know and need to keep reinforcing. I hope you found him inspiring as well. Here is a last piece of music uh, for tonight's show, written by Hildegard of Bingen. This one is called Living Fountain, and the performer is Richard Souther. You're listening to Paradigms on WBKM.org. Our next guest on the show tonight is Suzanne Sterling. 
Suzanne has been on Paradigms before, talking about her work with Off the Mat Into the World and her music. So now we're going to catch up with Suzanne and find out what she's been doing lately. Suzanne, welcome back to Paradigms. Thank you. It's so nice to talk with you. I know. It's always nice to talk to you. Where are you, San Francisco? I'm in Vermont. Oh, you're in Vermont. Okay. I'm in Vermont. And you are where? Oakland. Oakland. Okay. <laughs> yes. And so you've got a ton going on right now. Yes. What are you doing? You know, I'm doing the thing that I always do, which is some strange form of music, ritual, yoga, and activism. Those are the, you know, if I had to sort of soundbite everything that I do, it would go into the one of those four categories or a combination of the four I just got back from India with our Off the Mat Seva Challenge. And at this point, I'm going around the country teaching workshops and performing. I've also got about four albums coming this year, and I'm writing a book. Off the Mat is going through, you know, we're we're going through our own changes as well as we are uh, finally becoming our own 501c3. We had a parent organization for a long time. So that's the short version of the story. Wow. <laughs> Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. It's great though. I mean, I'm so lucky. I'm so blessed. And I'm often very thankful for the fact that I get to do for the most part what I love to do. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who, who don't get to do that. So I'm, I'm, I pause and am grateful often. Do you ever find that gratitude is a little out of reach, even though you're looking for it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> how do you handle that? Sure. Because I do too. And so I wonder, how, how do you handle that? Oftentimes, when gratitude is out of reach for me, I find that I'm out of balance, meaning I'm a really good codependent. I have a great Protestant work ethic. I love to work and it gives me a certain sense of self-worth and as I get older I'm finding that I don't have the prodigious amounts of energy that I used to have and I've been talking for many years now about this idea of sustainability especially when it comes to activism and I think that's a moving target for some of us like for me in my 20s I could do anything I could sleep anywhere it didn't matter as I've gotten older I've started to realize that I have to stay tuned to the changes that are going on inside of me so that I really know is this going to push me over my edge. You know, speaking as someone who did not have very strong limits, my limits are more and more and more coming right up in my face. And and I think that's a beautiful thing because what's happening is I'm really wanting to have much more of a personal life these days. And the idea of what does that look like? And, you know, as much as I talk about the idea that, you know, it's our being that's more important than our doing, I recognize over and over again how attached I am to being this person who gets stuff done. So there's a lot to it, like letting go of my expectations of myself, letting go of who I think I am in the world, and really dropping into being. And India was so good for me in that. You know, I I remembered this capacity to sit still for many hours at a time and not do anything, and how good that was for me. But coming back to the West, we generally are filtered around, what are you doing? What are you accomplishing? How much multitasking can you do? How fast can you go? And I admit I love the um, adrenaline of going fast, but I feel like it's a bit disingenuous because when I look at the world in general, I think we all just need to slow down, take a breath, and do things differently. So if I don't do that, who am I to say that to anyone else? I have always found that I teach that which I'm learning. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) If you think you have less energy than you used to, and you're doing all that stuff you just named... Wow. I'm glad you got that sit time. And I actually was following your trip to India, you know, the photographs that were being posted and it just heartwarming. 
and it was very different than we expected. Speaking of expectations, you know, um, it was a beautiful trip. We were working with organizations that are rescuing and empowering victims of sex trafficking in India, you know, not primarily, but strongly with an eye toward all of the people that went on that trip coming back to the U.S. and really helping with the situation here, which is intense as well, but more, much more under the rug. People don't even know that there's a lot of sex trafficking in their backyards everywhere in the U.S. So that was great. And we did learn from those organizations. What I mean to say is that we never know on these trips, you know, how much access we're going to have to the to the people that we're quote unquote serving. Although it doesn't really it doesn't really end out like that. Everyone gets served in the process, but we had a lot of time to hang out with the these young women and young girls whose lives had been shifted significantly, and it was profound. And I remembered the power of play. You know, these are people who've been through stuff that's unimaginable to me, and yet the resilience of the human spirit is profound. And, you know, that's another way that I I, um, I get gratitude. Like when I encounter other cultures where people live on a dollar a day or even a dollar a week, and I see the kind of suffering that most of us in the United States can't even comprehend, then my troubles, they're put in a completely different perspective. How do you... When you find yourself, not find yourself, but when you go to these places where it's a completely different culture, and what do you do with your Western lens? How do you pay attention to it and hopefully get it out of the mm. way or deal with where you can't get it out of the way? <laughs> That's a fabulous question, and, and it's one that we often try and talk about in the Save a Challenge. Some of the work that we do is focus as much on the experience of transformation that our participants are having than on the, the you know the, the service work that we're doing because we're we're advocating this thing called conscious activism conscious activism means you have to be aware of that particularly that western filter be aware of our own complicity as Americans in the problem itself, right? The root cause of whatever problem we're serving or trying to eradicate. And the idea of if I'm traumatized and I go into a situation and I try and serve either individuals or populations that are in trauma, then I'm not going to be really of service because my trauma is going to be either in the way part of the filter or it's actually even going to be a motivation for me. And so we're very clear. We do yoga in the morning as a way to stay clear in our bodies, our minds and our hearts and our souls. We go out, we do this really intense work, no doubt all kinds of stuff gets triggered. And then we come back every night and we do processing around it to really stay clear. Who am I? How am I showing up in this situation? Where does that Western filter come in? Where am I in judgment? Where am I in separation? Where am I in superiority? Where am I becoming the savior? All those notions, uh, we, we really try and bring them up in our own faces and say, what's coming up for me in this process? What can I take responsibility for? Here's new music from Suzanne. This is on one of the CDs she's talking about that she's currently working on. I have been with you from the beginning 
Suzanne Sterling, and that will be on a CD coming out later this year of chants for people that they can use in group singing. Both our guests tonight, Suzanne Sterling and Matthew Fox, are talking a lot about personal practice, about what works for them to keep them grounded and focused and in their creative stream. Regardless of what form the work takes, the essence of it is coming out of this creative stream and this these acts of service. Here's the second part of my conversation with Suzanne Sterling. We've had people come on these trips who did not do very much homework, I have to admit, <laughs> and have said some pretty um, outrageous stuff, which prompted me this year to actually begin. I wrote a cultural sensitivity training curriculum beforehand so that people can at least have this seed of I, as a Westerner who, who, you know, it's hard to, it's hard without judging ourselves to say, I've got all this stuff that I bring with me, all this entitlement, all this really lack of understanding of things. I might look at something and take it at surface value when there's deep complexities. So me as the facilitator, I often get overwhelmed with the complexities of, of leading a group of people in this situation. But I, I just have to keep going back to Human beings are pretty much the same everywhere in terms of our response to things, and we just have to stay aware of what's happening. And then we try and educate ourselves as much as possible. We can't know everything. We cannot know everything before we go in. We can't even know how much of our filter is filtering the process, but we can at least try and have that conversation ahead of time. We're entitled Westerners going into a situation we don't entirely comprehend. The best thing for us to do is to listen. And so to me, the most conscious activism I've ever done is just sitting and going, what's going on here? Tell me about this. Tell me what you need. I'm not going to come in here with my agenda and force it on you. You just said a lot of really important things. And I want to transfer a piece of what you said to folks who aren't in those situations. And that is the part about having a focus. You start the day with some kind of a focus and you end the day with someone to talk with about yes. what you've been experiencing. And what a difference that makes in our day, whether it's in India or in Oakland. Yes. And that a lot of people don't have that someone to talk with about their day who will really listen. Mm -hmm. 
And that's why we have therapists. <laughs> right. <laughs> and friends. <laughs> and friends. But I mean, I, you know, I, I really do advocate that daily process. You know, whatever it is, the daily practice is, is a crucial, crucial thing. I know that for me, it's the key to my own sustainability. Like no matter what is going on in my life, no matter how busy I am, for the most part, I find at least an hour a day to go inside and, you know, I'm, I'm moving my body most of the time, but I'm still not talking to anyone. I'm able to sort of work things through my system. And, and I do believe that that is a key, key piece to being, uh, you know, present, if not effective in the world. Well, you're dealing with your inner landscape. Exactly. Well, and we can hear in your voice that you've probably been singing your heart out a lot recently. Yes. Yeah, I have. You've got new music coming out. We're going to play some of it on the show. And uh, what's your current musical juice? Uh, I'm in a really difficult phase right now with my music because, you know, the, so many of the other things that I do in my life are so, um, they're so much more lucrative than music. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, music is a really interesting thing to talk about for me because it's so much a part of what I do, and it's a challenging way to make a living. Right now, I'm trying to find juice in. I'm trying to go back to what do I love about music? It's not the music industry, that's for sure, but music <laughs> itself, I love. And what has been juicing me in the last couple of years is developing my own curriculum around, it's kind of like yoga movement meditation and collective improvisational singing. That's pretty much what I teach wherever I go and, and the importance of that and the power of that. That's why I did this, this album that I just finished of, I think it's like 25 English language chants that people can use for any kind of ritual or group event that they can sing together and play with. So that's pretty exciting for me because I've been trying to get that out for a long time. The kind of music that I want to make is this last album that I'm working on, which is a dance album. I really want to do something that's kind of like larger than life to a certain degree that really gets people moving. So I'm excited about that, although I haven't, I've been trying to get these other albums out because I want to get them done before I really focus on this next piece. So I say, I think what's juicing me is the very beginnings of this album that is, I think, going to be a lot of work and, and very profound for me because it's going to be much more personal than anything I've done in many years. So I want to write from the heart. You know, I want to write intimate songs. I've been writing songs that are very much like, um, you know, quote-unquote spiritual or songs that you could use for a yoga practice that are way less personal to me, Suzanne. And so I'm interested in going back to who is Suzanne and what does she have to say, whether it's p politically correct or not. <laughs> yep, yep. Right on. Thanks. Um, I think that's great. Yeah. I'm also struck by, because I've known you for a while and you've always had like a number of projects, but you mainly focus on this one now yeah. and then this one now. And now you've got like a bunch of them. Yeah going at once that you're having to sort of allocate your energies to. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, how's, how is that? You know, again, it's, it's good. I, I think part of what I'm doing is trying to um, get a lot of the stuff that I've already created codified into, you know, albums or books. Or I'm also thinking about doing a, a streaming, like, teaching series for, for the internet. Just because I've got all this content. And right now, it's all based on my ability to be there. So basically my adrenals. And what I'm trying to do is get it out into the world in a bigger way. So I'm trying to organize a bit about it. I think, again, the older I get, the more I'm trying to organize as opposed to just simply go out and do as much as I can in, in a short amount of time. As you say, I mean, you've spent decades creating and exploring and learning and developing, and now it's time to transcribe it. Exactly. Yep, exactly. And make it available to people. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm constantly trying to figure out how to simplify it all. 
I would say in the last six months, I have created pockets of moments where I can actually just be, you know, in my own personal life. And it's been really, really, really rewarding. I don't know where my my strong desire to to work came from, and I love what I do, but just finding a little bit more balance, I think, is going to be key to being effective at all the things, you know, even if I have to take them one at a time, like you said. I'm happy for you that you're getting some personal time, because you have been just cranking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And it's enjoyable. You know, I like I like really simple things like walks in nature and really good meals and, you know, silence, um, you know, just hanging out with good friends. I really, really love that. Well, I'm glad you have it. Thank you. Take good care of yourself. Okay. Thanks, Luke. It's always a pleasure to talk with Suzanne and hear what she's doing. She's just got so many great ideas that she's following. Well, that is tonight's show. So thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed Matthew Fox and Suzanne Sterling, and that you'll check out the Paradigms website, paradigms.bz, where you'll find links to our guests and also a donate button. Should you be enjoying these shows, please consider donating. The donations simply go to help keep WBKM and Paradigms on the air. And I guess that's it for this week. Next week, we'll have shrimp live in the wbkm studio playing live music for you here on paradigms i hope you'll tune in and and get your groove on so until then have a great week this is baruch signing off from paradigms wbkm.org i'm going to leave you with a piece of music by suzanne sterling called rise in me rise in me
You've been listening to Paradigms on WBKM.org. Thank you.